Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. Since Craig and I both have quite a bit of time this week, uh, we decided to tackle something a little bit longer than we usually do. You know how we feel about long movies. (laughs) (laughs) We don't often have a lot of patience for them. This movie, however... Uh, is a film that we have been intending to do for a while. but Years. Years, right? <laughs> the movie is called Salem's Lot. It's the 1979 TV miniseries version. And I guess there's a remake in the works coming yeah, up. Yeah, this year. Yeah, produced by James Wan. So it just so happens to be an apropos time. But also, we've just been wanting to do it for a while. I'll tell you, this movie had an impression on me as a child. I don't remember when I would have seen it. I don't remember if this is something I rented or if this is something that was shown again on television. I certainly didn't see it when it came out when I was one year old. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a made-for-television movie directed by Toby Hooper, and uh, it went through quite a few drafts. I think Warner Brothers had acquired the rights to Stephen King's novel to make a movie version. And they went through a number of screenwriters. Nothing was really clicking. They even went through Larry Cohen. And we like Mm -hmm, Larry mm -hmm. Cohen. And he does interesting stuff. But at the end of the day, they decided, you know what? Maybe in order to do the novel justice, (laughs) like most of Stephen King's novels, we should uh, go for something longer and make it a miniseries. Uh, I think George Romero was actually originally tapped to do it. Yep. I think he was mostly turned off by the fact that it would be television, and he knew that he wouldn't be able to do anything gross and cool. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So so Toby Hooper, of all people, took up the task basically, I think, on the strength of his Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was only about five years before this went into production that came out. So up-and-coming horror director, I guess he hadn't done Poltergeist yet. The screenplay was written by Paul Manash, a guy who wrote quite a bit for television and movies. He was uncredited as a writer on Touch of Evil, Orson Welles' 1958 movie, and a lot of other, a lot of TV episodes and things like that. But he made a lot of changes to the Stephen King novel uh, in order to shorten it, consolidate characters, simplify the story. Some of the changes were quite drastic. However, Stephen King, who often doesn't like most of the adaptations of his novel actually really liked this one and approved mm-hmm. of the changes. So again, I saw it when I was a kid. I remembered it really creeping me out. I didn't I remembered two or three scenes from the movie and other than that I didn't remember much of anything. So I was really happy to come and revisit this now. And what we're doing today is we're just talking about the first part of it. We're talking about what was shown on television the first day, which was uh, of an hour and a half long. And mostly set up, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we'll come back again with another episode, and we'll talk about the second half, which I think will be a lot more exciting. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> really. So anyway, how about you, Craig? Uh, had you you'd seen this before, right? Yeah, I've seen it, but it came out the year I was born, so not then. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't think that I saw it when I was a kid. I think that I rented this when I was in graduate school Mm. and watched it. There are multiple versions uh, of the film. This is the first made-for-television miniseries adaptation of a Stephen King novel, and it's only the second film adaptation of a a Stephen King novel, Uh, the first being Carrie, and then this was the second. This was also his second novel. 
I think I saw the movie at some point in graduate school. It really didn't make a big impression on me. There are the iconic scenes of child vampires floating outside of windows. Mm. I did remember that. I see that, you know, when I'm looking at, like, iconic scenes and scary scene-type lists and stuff. Um, So it's been present in my mind. Um, I also uh, read the novel, and, and I think I read the novel even later than I... Even after I saw the movie. Yeah, me too. And it's a good book. It is good. It's interesting. You know, it's only King's second published novel. You know, I don't know what else he was working on, but it it, it was his second published novel. And it's different. It's quite different than uh, his other books. First of all, I don't recall him ever writing uh, another vampire novel. Now, I I think vampires feature uh, in the Dark Tower series a little bit. I remember um, reading a short story of his that was in the Dark Tower universe, I think, that featured vampires or some kind of vampire. But um, Mm. he was inspired to write this novel when he assigned his class because King was a teacher before he was a famous novelist. That's why teachers and writers feature so prominently as main characters in his books. (laughs) You know, he writes what he knows. Yeah, but he he assigned his class Bram Stoker's Dracula, uh, and and that just got him thinking. What if Dracula came to America? <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of basically what the story is. You know, there there is a, a central vampire, Kurt Barlow whose role is dramatically diminished. In this film, mm. in the novel, the Barlow character is a central character, and he's portrayed very differently. First of all, the movie is, or excuse me, the novel is written very much like Dracula. I think it's at least in part in epistolary form, so through you know a series of letters and journal entries, and and if I remember, it's been a super long time. I don't remember it very well because it has been a long time for me too, but it does also kind of jump around a little bit in time, right? Well, yes, and and there's there's far more focus, which, you know, this is typical of Stephen King. Uh, I, I He's one of my favorite authors, but a lot of his novels are epic. You know, this, I think, yeah. is like a 400-page novel, and, and that's... It's super long. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, that's that's fairly typical of him. Some of his novels are significantly longer than that. But there there are lots of things going on. You know, there, there's a big cast of characters uh, in both the novel and the movie, but especially the novel, and there there's lots of backstory. You know, a lot of the novel and a lot of this movie focus around this house. Do you remember what the name of the house is? It's the Marsden house, yeah. Yeah, the Marsden house. And uh, in the book, there's a lot of backstory, a lot of history about this house. And it's suggested in the movie that this house has been the center of a lot of really dark and and terrible things. And characters speculate that uh, maybe there's something about this house that draws evil people to it because lots of bad things have happened here. There is a story of a guy named Hubie Marsden who like 
potentially maybe abducted and killed a lot of young boys in the area and uh, I think his wife or mother killed herself and and all of that is explored a lot more in the novel. And, and of course, you know, even if you are condensing a Stephen King novel to 3 hours, you're still going to have to cut out a lot of stuff. Mhm. So that's that's one of the things that was a big change. Another thing that's a big change is the portrayal of the head vampire. In the novel, Barlow, the the vampire, is very much like Dracula. He's suave, he's genteel, he can appear as both a young man and like an elderly aristocrat, uh, and he appears, you know, heavily in the novel. In the movie, you barely see him at all. He gets 90 seconds of screen time in the entire three-hour run. He doesn't speak, and he is portrayed much more along the lines of Count Orlok Nosferatu type vampire. He's mm-hmm. he's blue, he's got, you know, really really prominent fangs. He's bat-like in appearance and he just pops up every once in a while and if I remember correctly, not even until the second movie or the second part. Is he even in this first part? No, his his hand is in this first part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I went ahead and watched the whole thing, so <laughs> I'm ahead of the game. Wow, you're, <laughs> ahead, you're way ahead of the game. You know, I now I feel like a slacker. I thought we had a commitment. I thought we had a pact, Craig. It was, it was, it, it was I told you I don't have time to watch this whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Of, of all the people who have time to watch this movie, well, I guess it's both you and me. Except I'm stuck at home, right? In quarantine, in China, this you know for the foreseeable future. So if anybody yeah. could afford to sit down and watch a three-hour movie, it's certainly me. I dutifully turned it off at an hour and a half, <laughs> right at the I, moment where you told me it ended. I told you just yeah. so that. <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> well, I'm kind of I'm kind of stuck in quarantine in my classroom. I, I your I classroom <laughs> quarantine. <laughs> I still like. Anyway, yeah, so lots of differences uh, between the movie and and the book, but like you said, ultimately Stephen King was happy with the way that it turned out. He was skeptical about the way that his vampire was portrayed, but when he actually saw it on screen, he gave it his approval. Um, There are different versions of the movie. As you said, it aired in the United States as a two-part miniseries, three hours long. It was then edited down to about, I think, about 120 minutes for a theatrical release in Europe, and Stephen King actually prefers that. <clears throat> version. Oh, does he? Mm-hmm. Well, didn't that version also have some additional scenes of, of more violence uh, for it that couldn't be shown on TV? Yeah, they intentionally shot they intentionally shot alternate scenes throughout the production knowing that they were going to also release a feature film version. There is a feature film version that uh, features just a tiny, tiny bit more gore and uh, a little bit. There are some... Fred Willard is in this movie and and there's a scene (laughs) of his um, that had a change that I think would have made it far more menacing. But again, it's TV in the 70s, so you do what you gotta do. Yeah. 
I mean, it's still impressive for TV in the 70s, I'll say, so far, in the first hour and a half. I mean, some of the... <laughs> the second half is better, by the way. <laughs> oh, okay, good. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing about it is, and I think probably, I don't know, it was a different time. We've already talked about how films were a little different then, too, and there was more time for exposition, and, and the, you know, there was just a different style. And also television. A TV movie was an event. A miniseries is a huge event. Yeah. And then a miniseries, you know, based on a well-known property with a well-known author or something like that is basically must-see TV. Mm -hmm. And it's only going to come on once. So your audience is probably going to sit through it just so they can talk about it the next day with their friends, Mm -hmm. even if they're not initially captivated by it. So I think this movie could definitely afford to <laughs> honestly kind of do a, a film version of Stephen King's M.O., which is take your time with the characters, give mm-hmm. them, flesh them out, give them backstories, like before you really start throwing them into situations. And there's a definite point in this movie where suddenly everything comes, it starts to come to a head. It starts to pay off what you've seen of all these different characters. In in a way, it was actually reminding me a lot of Needful Things, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which also started out as a television miniseries. It's got a similar flavor to it. Um, I think this right. Wasn't Salem's Lot the first um, book that he did that was set in Castle Rock, his, his sort of fictional universe where well, Castle I mean, Rock, it's, Maine... It's- it's set in Salem's Lot. <laughs> I don't but remember. I, mean, if, I don't remember if Castle Rock is is mentioned. Castle Rock's uh, near. He mentions. I think. It's yeah. Mentioned. Oh, yeah. It's definitely nearby. Yeah. And um, Bangor is also mentioned in there, and um, you know, obviously Salem's Lot. But this movie, much like his Castle Rock novels, sets up a whole town full of people. Yeah. And all of their relationships. And there's more to the story than just the horror at hand. There is jealousy and revenge and intrigue between people in the town and unfinished business. And that all gets in the way also of the main story, which makes his novels feel more real. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I like that about them. These people are not just people that exist to service this plot, but these people have had interesting lives and have their own plots, you know, that they're living. And then this something gets thrown in there, um, which brings everything to a head. And, and so I like that about his writing, even though a lot of times I don't have the patience for it. You know, he has his critics. Um, He is kind of long winded. I never find him boring. I'm intrigued. Novels like Salem's Lot and like Needful Things and some of his other novels work well in a miniseries form because there are so many characters and these characters have their own compelling story. Everything is interwoven Mm -hmm. and comes back together uh, at some point. But like you said, you're focusing on a whole town. The same thing is true of Needful Things, which was also, I think, uh, a miniseries initially starring Bonnie Bedelia, who is also in this movie. Oh, that's right. There have been a couple of others, uh, I think. Well, one other that I remember. Tommyknockers. Tommyknockers. I read, Tommyknockers was one of the first Stephen King novels that I read, and I read it in seventh grade, and I was far too young to be reading that. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's about when I read it too, actually. I, I swear to you, I was seventh or eighth grade. Yeah. I loved it, but I, I think part of the reason I loved it because it was all the sex and intrigue. You well, know? there's a lot of sex in that book. And I'll tell you another thing. It's a, it's a pretty bleak book. Uh-huh. And the other thing about it is... I, you know, it was probably to date in, you know, in the seventh grade when I went on kind of a Stephen King reading rampage. It was the book I could put down. I got about halfway through it and, and, I, and I never picked it back up until, yeah, I don't know, like two months later. And then I would read five or six more chapters and then I would put it down. And getting through the book finally was a bit of a slog for me. I don't. I don't know if I would have that same problem now as an adult. Who knows? Yeah, um, I haven't read I, it since seventh grade, so I, I have no idea. I remember seeing the miniseries. I don't remember that much about it. I do remember obviously it truncated a lot from the novel. Mm-hmm. Needful Things is something that I read not long before we did the movie. So just a couple years ago, mm-hmm. um, I read ne- Needful Things, and I really enjoyed it. And it was very similarly long. Mm-hmm. And very similarly, but there was a, you know, uh, the the main character who comes to town who's starting to create mischief comes in at the beginning and he kind of starts mm-hmm. creating mischief. And owns a curiosity shop. I mean, there are lots yeah, of, there are lots very of parallel things. to the Salem's lot. Well, yeah. all of the ones that you just mentioned and It, which of course is a classic TV miniseries from our childhood, Mm, all of those mm. movies I think work really well in miniseries form because they are all about events that affect an entire community of a whole town. So everybody can relate to something about this. Yeah, and these were big deals, big, big deals, events when we were kids, and uh, you just don't see it anymore, you know, because cable television just isn't what it was once well, network television yeah. right yeah it's i mean <laughs> yeah. it's 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 on its way out but i have a feeling that we'll probably start seeing you know either remakes or original content uh, based on stephen king's work in long form in the form of limited series oh, because yeah. those are very popular right now and and I'm glad. I love them. I, I we I, all love them, right? Uh huh. Yeah. Uh huh. So I have a feeling we'll be seeing them again. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about it, Craig. I, I think we might get some comments. Like here we are. We complain about something being too long, but we of course love these <laughs> limited series. Breaking Bad. How many hours did I sink into that I know. movie? <laughs> you know, and I absolutely loved it. I guess it's just. Maybe we're trained differently. And also, it's it's episodic, right? Like, you yeah. can stop it. You can. Each one is, you know, ends on a cliffhanger, ends with some kind of, some sort of resolution within the episode, right? Yeah. Whereas long movies, just like, you've got to sit through the whole thing. You can't, it's stopping, it's awkward. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw a meme somewhere that was like, do you want to watch a 10-hour movie? No. Are you crazy? Well, what if we broke it up into one-hour segments that then you could just watch in succession all at one time? Okay, <laughs> sign me up. <laughs> I'm going to binge watch it on Netflix. Right. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it is not too far removed from this era. I mean, well, I mean, it's maybe 10 years, it's at least 10 years later, but it the story and the miniseries are almost two self-contained stories. Yeah. Right? The first half of it, when it finishes, the kids think they fought the evil. The second half of it is the kids as adults who are coming back because they didn't 
quite finish the job. And that's how the novel is. And that kind worked of. well for a two-part miniseries. Uh-huh. This one, though, it, it just stops in the middle of the story, basically. Right. And it, and <laughs> yeah. it really just stops when things start getting good. I, I mean, yeah. this movie is... Um, a lot of setup, and I didn't find it boring. You know, I was interested in in getting to know the characters, and I, I knew, like I could tell. All right, it's setting everything up, mm-hmm. and, and we'll get to the exciting stuff later. You know, I, like I, I, I felt that that suggested promise from the filmmakers. Like we're gonna get to it. <laughs> I wait, promise wait. we will. Here's a little clue. Here's a little. Uh, here's a little clue. Here's a little <laughs> bit of suspense. But you know, wait, wait, wait for it. Wait for it. I, if you see this as a drama, uh, then now if you if you sit down to like, okay, I'm just going to sit down and watch this typical TV uh, movie drama or some Lifetime thing or whatever in the beginning, then you can just sit down and have the patience for all this. If you're looking for wham bam, blood and action and vampires at the very beginning you're going to be waiting yeah at least an hour yeah before you see anything that's going to be remotely spooky yeah yeah but i mean it it was fine and and you'll see um the the (laughs) second the second part of the movie is much more um action heavy there's a lot it moves more quickly there's a lot going on um i don't know that i would necessarily say it's scary i would say that this uh, the the whole movie more than anything, and this is kind of true of Dracula too, um, is more atmospheric and spooky and suspenseful as opposed to in-your-face scary. I was so surprised in high school. Of course, we grew up, Dracula and Frankenstein were kind of the iconic monsters before our era of monsters started Mm -hmm. coming in. Before Freddy and Jason and all of them... Dracula and Frankenstein were, you know, the monsters. And I read both of those books in high school, just on my own. I wasn't assigned them for a class, but I read them both in high school. And I was so surprised. They're they're mm. not they're not like in your face horror. They are character studies. Yeah. Especially Dracula. Dracula's kind of boring. <laughs> well, Frankenstein kind of is too. It and, is too. And, and You're really right. Frankenstein ends up being more you feel sympathetic towards the monster. Yes. More than anything, the monster is the victim, the anti-hero. In fact, I found myself rooting for the monster. Like sure. Yeah, <laughs> he, well, I think you're supposed to. He wants revenge and he deserves it. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I think that, you know, King was very much inspired by Dracula and and that's where we get this story, which we should probably get into, start to talk about. Yeah, a bit. <laughs> the uh, the the movie um, opens the same way that the, no- that the novel did, and and watching the movie reminded me. You know, I, I I remembered these things about the novel. I remembered that there's kind of a frame story where it starts out in the movie. It's in Guatemala. In the book, it's in Mexico. Whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, and we see two of what will become our main characters. Of course, we know nothing about them right now. But Ben is a man, an adult man. He's played by David Soul, who I – gosh, I can't remember what he was from. He was from a really famous 70s TV show. You mean um, Starsky and Hutch? I think so, he was, yeah. Yeah, he was Hutch in Starsky and Hutch. Yeah, ben. that's that's what I was thinking of. And Mark, uh, a younger boy – 
teenager, probably adolescent, played by a kid named Lance Kerwin. Don't know anything about him. He's fine in the movie, whatever. We see them. <laughs> they are in a church, and they're collecting holy water in a little vial. And then the vial starts glowing, and Ben says, they found us again. And it fades to a full moon over a spooky house, and the title, Salem's Lot. Now, the the title of the book is Salem's Lot with an apostrophe before the S, the, the first S of Salem, because really in the book, the name of the town is Jerusalem's Lot. Mm-hmm. They just simplify it for the movie. It's just Salem's lot. <laughs> and it and and we jump there and uh, it tells us that it's 2 years earlier. And we catch up with Ben, our main character again, and he approaches this spooky house. It it, it kind of looks like um Norman Bates's house just a little bit smaller. Yeah, and it, and it it's does. a top a top a hill. And I read that um this house is actually a facade that they built around an existing house on the top of a hill. And they ended up spending $100,000 to build this facade around this existing house, which in 1979, they easily could have built, they could have constructed a real house. (laughs) That's crazy, right? For that amount of money. But my God, yeah, that could have been a house for somebody. (laughs) Well, they they spent $100,000 on the exterior and then they spent like $30,000 or something like that for their, their interior studio sets. But yeah, so okay, so what, you know, what what do we say? I mean, there's there's a whole cast of characters. There ben is. goes into town. He goes immediately to a realtor who is uh, Larry Crockett, played by Fred Willard, who passed away just a couple of years ago and uh, was just such a brilliant and mm. um, uh, just one of the most hilarious men in television and film. He was great in comedy, but he could do drama. I mean, you know. He could he, do anything. Yeah. Just so nice, and and, and just it just seemed like the coolest, nicest guy, um, and he plays kind of a scuzzy realtor in this. He's got uh, an assistant or a secretary or something. Uh huh. Bonnie. Boom boom Bonnie. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's the mo- the movie is full of of stars. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. Anybody you know from you would recognize all these people from television and movies as these TV events usually were jam packed full of stars. That's um, true. Part of their draw, but yeah, Bonnie is a very recognizable comedic actress who was all over television at the time. What I also like about this movie is how the script is smart in that I think that it does skip over a lot of unnecessary, even though there is a lot of exposition. There are a couple lines that work just as well. I love this um, scene. It's it's not in the beginning, but it's a little later where you just meet Bonnie and Fred and whatever, and then Bonnie does go home to her husband, and he seems like a a drunk. Well, he's one of Stephen King's typical drunk, abusive husbands. Mm-hmm. But she's nice to him and everything like that. And then the next scene we see with her in the real estate office, there's some business going on and uh, Crockett has to leave. I will be right back. Okay, honey. Please don't say that. Someday you'll forget. All right, honey. I forgot. And just from that line, where we otherwise have still have not seen anything romantic between the two of them, we know, oh, these two are having an affair. Mm-hmm. You know, that is so typical of Stephen King. There's almost yeah. soap operatic drama 
in his uh everybody's work. sleeping with somebody else or beating somebody else or their parents are are terrible to them or their uh-huh. husbands are terrible to them it, it is so, always such drama yeah um what's his name ben it, he asks he says i need a place to live he's talking to the realtor and he i need a place to live um and crockett's like well there's not really anything available right now and he's like well what about that the big house on the hill oh the marsden place well no it just got sold um so ben is very interested in this house it, as it turns out he's a writer he's from salem's lot but he left when he was very young and he went off and he found success um, as a writer, he was he was married, but he's uh, a, a widower, and he also doesn't admit it to everyone, right? Which uh-huh. I thought was interesting. At first, you don't think he's from there. Later, after he checks into this boarding house, he runs across this woman who's laying down in a park, and it's just a very chance meeting. Yeah, where he's just walking down the street. It's so it's super chance. It was actually kind of weird because yeah. like it almost seemed like they were familiar but then it becomes apparent that they're meeting for the first time. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> like it was just <laughs> like did he just see a woman in the park and was like I'm going to shoot my shot like I mean, basically <laughs> yeah. And it and it just so happens that she's reading one of his books, you know, okay, whatever. Part, that's half of the reason why he stopped and sat down with her. <laughs> right. I mean, hey, if I had written a book and my face was on the back of it and I I saw some hot chick reading it. I would, I'd milk that for all it was worth. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And that hot chick is uh, Susan. Wait, what's your name? Susan. Norton. I teach art at Holly Elementary. My father's a doctor in town. You know, the reason that I um, actually took your book out of the library is because I read your other one. Title? I don't remember. Going to have some dinner? No, you got a boyfriend. Um, well, not exactly. It says here you're married, no children. Still married? Still no children? Ah. She died. I got no children. I got some memories, some of them good, some of them not so good. You didn't answer my questions. She's played by Bonnie Bedelia, who I remember that name from when we were young. I feel like mm. Bonnie Bedelia had a moment in the 80s and 90s. She did. She is very beautiful. I, th- I think that uh, the thing that I remember her most from is she played Bruce Willis's estranged wife in the Die Hard series. Mm-hmm. Great movies, by the way. That was probably her most famous one. Um, but then she was in, like, Presumed Innocent with Harrison Ford. Like you said, she was in Needful Things. You're right. It's just like she had her moment. It's like she was the chick of the hour for, like, a year or two. Uh-huh. Right? Where, like, this is the wife of the action star or this is the love interest of the action star or something like that, right? Yeah. I mean, she's still been working since then. It's just, yeah. like, a lot of different random stuff. And I, I like her. She's pretty and she's charming and um, she's she's fine. She, she doesn't play as much a role in the movie as she does in the book. She's... She's more just kind of the love interest who's around um, mm-hmm. for for most of the movie. She she has a little bit more to do in the second half, but not much. But anyway, okay, so then that connection is made. She's a teacher. She asks him, are you from around here? And he says no. Like, he deli- he lies to her and tells her that he's not. 
So it's a little confusing at first. It's not till later as things kind of unfold that he meets up with old friends that you realize, oh, no, this guy actually does have a history in the town. And you kind of wonder, why didn't he tell this chick he was interested in about it? I I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm still not sure I know. (laughs) No, I I don't think that there's any good reason for him to conceal that. I I don't know either. Maybe it's maybe there's something in the book. I, I don't know. Maybe. But uh, so, okay, so they meet, whatever. He's still creeping, like, at the Marsden place. And, and the people who bought the Marsden place are these two men who are business partners. <laughs> there was one point where, okay, so the guy who's there, who's, who's setting stuff up, they've bought the house, and they also bought, I think, what the realtor said had been like a doctor's office or something, but they've converted it to an antique store. Mm-hmm. And but there's only one of them there so far, and his name is Striker. Striker, <laughs> <laughs> actually, but yeah, <laughs> close it's, enough. Yeah, it's so close to the uh, the curtains guy, right? Remember Striker? <laughs> yes, of course I do. <laughs> How could I forget? But he's there, um, and he's getting every set up, and he is like this typical late middle aged like probably 50s kind of gentleman type tightly character. wound british mm. gentleman right he's, he wears a hat and a suit everywhere he goes always yeah. like he's always just dressed you know to the nines and um he tells the sheriff uh, or excuse me the constable cuz this is a <laughs> Small town, underst- apparently. I don't understand the constable bit. I thought constables were only in England. I never once in the U.S. heard anybody refer to anybody else as a constable. I don't know. It's New England. Maybe they're fancy. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, my partner's full name is Court Barlow. Court with a K. We've been working together in London and Hamburg. This is our retirement, modest, comfortable. We're hoping to build a reputation for ourselves in this area, perhaps throughout New England. Do you think that's possible, Constable? Anything's possible. How do you like that old house? Needs work, but we have time. I was kind of almost getting kind of like a we're a couple vibe. I was too. But, I mean, to... Older middle-aged gentleman moved to a small New England town to open an antique store. I mean, come <laughs> on. <laughs> that, is, that is transparent as hell right there. <laughs> is it is it implied in the book? I don't remember. Uh, I, I have no idea. I don't remember at all. Uh, what I what what I do know is that as it turns out, basically. Straker is um, Barlow's familiar. You know, he's his human um, associate that lays the groundwork, takes care of things Mm -hmm. um, as necessary in the human world. He keeps talking about how, you know, they're going to open the store as soon as Barlow arrives. But every time anybody asks him when Barlow's going to show up, he's like, I don't know. know, (laughs) He's on his way. And when he gets here, you're going to love him and he's going to love you. (laughs) You're you're just going to love him and he's going to love you. But, you know. What you mentioned, it's very similar to Fright Night. And Fright Night was apparently, um, Uh this movie was cited as a inspiration for Fright Night. Well, there's there's a similar character in Dracula too. It's like Ren, Ren Renfield. Renfield. Yeah, yeah, but he's very he's kind of different though. Right? Different. He's, he's crazy. crazy. Yeah. Well, um, and we can't forget to mention that um, Stry- Straker is played by James Mason, who is just a uh, 
a veteran of the silver screen, particularly in the 40s and 50s. He was Captain Nemo in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. He was a North by Northwest, you know, one of the, he's the lead in Journey to the Center of the Earth. I mean, um, this guy, you know, by this time is a legend of, uh, of film. And I guess he jumped at the chance to play yeah. this role, which was rather different from roles he'd played in the past, just sort of a personification of evil role. Uh-huh. And he died uh-huh. not long after this, actually. I think he died just a few years after this, this movie came out. I didn't know that, but he's he's quite good. Um, mm. As far as acting is concerned, he's probably the most talented of the bunch. That's not to say that anybody else is bad. You know, it does... I have to say I was a little bit surprised. You know, I really like Toby Hooper. You know, of course... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Texas Chainsaw is is a classic. I and I know we've debated, you know, what really was going on behind the scenes of Poltergeist, but I love Poltergeist. Mm-hmm. And um, Toby Hooper has done some other, you know, really interesting movies like Funhouse and and some other really cool stuff. <sighs> this just doesn't really seem like there's anything special. Yeah. You know, like, it, it doesn't Where's feel like... Where's his signature like, in this movie, right? Right, yeah. like, oh, yeah, man, classic Toby Hooper. No, it, I mean, it kind of feels like it'd be anybody. Really? Even in the second half, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I, I'm sure that much of that has to do with the limitations of television. You know, the the movie does have a rating. It's rated PG, and rightfully mm. so, because there's next to no violence or gore everything is implied and basically you know god there's a whole cast of characters there's stuff going on but um not much really no you're right it's 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 set up it's like you said it's it's almost purely set up um connected by this small thread of this new guy in town setting up an antique um, dealership this guy ben who's clearly for reasons we don't quite know yet intrigued by the house and by him it seems like this is his purpose for coming because it's like his first stop when he's there and he looks over at the house from across the suite and sweats coming from his brow and everything like that he clearly has some kind of history with this house once we finally learn that he um used to live in this town you know it's just a bunch of business right this guy's got to get a bunch of antiques picked up from the dock and so um you know straker supposedly yeah so straker um gets the um larry the realtor to arrange it because he's arranging everything for him Uh, and larry talks to the guy in town who's the shipper dude who happens to be the husband of bonnie and he talks to the caretaker because he needs hands to lift all the stuff and bring it into the truck and it turns out he's really not even planning to do it himself no it's a setup can you find anybody else? And the other dude he finds is this guy named Ned, who's like basically been stalking Susan as like a sort of a jilted her former ex. lover who's obsessed with her. And he creeps at her from across the way. And so it's like we learn about all these little relationships. But at the end of the day, the only thing that happens in this first half is these guys get in this truck and they go across town to the dock to pick up this giant crate. At the same time, Larry, Bonnie's husband, who's supposed to be with them, has gone off through the cemetery with a where he, you know, picked them up uh, with his six pack of beer and then uh, goes on and hangs out outside the house because he has the suspicions that Bonnie is having the affair with this with this guy. 
And and I feel like this is the point at which everything's starting to come to a head yeah. now that everything's kind of been laid out. There's another scene where Ben meets up with his old um, high school teacher um, and they talk about, it's just an exposition to talk a little bit more about the history of the town. And the house. And the house. And it turns out that Ben, um, I guess there was some killing, There, you know, there's been people who have taken the house who turned out to kill their kill their families and then gone insane. I went up there once. On a dare. You know how kids are. I was sweating scared. I sneaked around. Got into the house. What did you see? Ghosts. Everything. Every sound. Every shadow. I'm not sure what I saw. I, uh... I think I saw Hubie Marston hanging by his neck. His face green, his eyes puffed shut. His hands livid. It was ghastly. And then he opened his eyes and he looked at me. He looked at me. And I took off and I ran. I ran as fast as I could. I've never forgotten that. something a feeling of jason do you believe a thing can be inherently evil i I don't think that he literally saw the man hanging i think what he's suggesting is like he saw the ghost of the guy and it and it's haunted him ever since and he really just had in his he has in his mind that maybe the house is evil and that it draws evil people to it so he's very, very curious about Straker and Barlow. You know, <laughs> what are they up to? At the same time, he's a little bit curious as to why he feels so drawn to it. And at some point, he says that he thinks that maybe his arrival was a catalyst for the strange things that are beginning to happen in town. Mm-hmm. The strange things are, well, first of all, there's a, a scene where Cully, Bonnie's husband, uh, catches her in her affair and, you know, points a shotgun at both her and uh, Crockett. And um, this was one of the scenes that was altered because he takes Crockett into the living room, you know, Fred Willard in silk red boxer shorts. Adorable. This is is exactly how you would dress in a TV movie if you're having an affair. (laughs) He bursts in. He bursts in. He hears noises from the bedroom. He bursts in. They're both just sitting up in bed, smooching. Each of them have on very not revealing, but silk (laughs) underpants. So he takes him out to the living room and he and he he points a shotgun at his head and he makes him hold the barrel. I mean, it's you know he's threatening I him. That was he's pretty intimidating. Intense, him. It is intense. It's more intense. There apparently there is a version. Now I don't know if this is a version that was ever released. People online claim to have seen it, but what I've read about the versions that you can get your hand on, it, it's it's not there. In what we saw, he forces him to hold the barrel of the shotgun right up to his face, which is intimidating enough, but apparently they shot a take where he forced Fred Willard to put the shotgun in his mouth. And that 
you know, aside from the sexual implications, mm. it's 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 just so brutal, intimate, and intrusive, and yeah. brutal, and 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 scary. And yeah, I kind of wish that it was in there. I just I feel too. like it would have amped up the intensity of the scene. Um, but but whatever. But he lets him go. But as soon as Fred Willard runs out of the house, we just see him confronted by a dark figure. And because this is a made for TV movie, the commercial breaks are clear. Like you can (laughs) totally tell when it's going to commercial by nature of the format. This happens a lot. Like something very creepy happens cut to black. Um, so, so you don't know exactly what happens. Um, but the next time we see him he has been placed in a car near the lake um still in his shorts um and he's dead and ben and susan who've been smooching at the lake find him and then people start dying uh he dies um the kids we met we met mark I mentioned Mark. Mark was in this first scene, like the the prologue scene. He's a kid. He's working on a pageant that's like a history of the town. And he's got these two friends, their brothers. Danny and was it Robbie? Danny and Richie or Robbie or something like that. Yeah. Richie or Robbie, something like that. Um, he's got these two friends and they come over to his house to rehearse uh, for the play, but on their walk home at night through the woods, Danny, the older one, um, goes ahead, and we see the younger one, Ricky or Ralphie, Ralphie, get overtaken by a shadowy figure. We, you know, we have no idea who it is. We find out soon, though, because Danny stumbles home and is like, kind of I don't know, bit, kind of yeah. beat up and and like doesn't know what's going on. Um, but we see Straker carrying Ralphie into the cellar of the house wrapped in trash bags. Yeah. It's really Yeah. And and that's something that surprised me about this movie and I, I, I'm sure it's faithful to the book, but children are the first victims. Yeah. Now I I don't know if they were intentionally targeting children. It kind of seems like it. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. Because they they get Ralphie. Now we said that they had sent the Straker through Crockett had sent those guys to pick up a delivery, and the delivery that they pick up is this huge crate, and uh, you know they they comment about how like it's like emanating cold. Hey, that thing is moving. Stop the truck. We should open the thing up. I can't do that. Something's wrong. It's getting cold in here. Let's just get it delivered. I want to open it. Come on. And it makes them very uncomfortable and very unnerved, but they they deliver it nonetheless. They're, they're t- they they kind of hear something or like it moves around, so they're so freaked out that they don't even finish. They're supposed to like lock it up and whatever, and they don't even do that. They just get the heck out of there. Yeah. Um, and when when Straker comes home with the little boy's body, it's obvious that the crate has been bust out of something from the inside is bust out of it. And then the iconic scene of the movie is when little uh, Ralphie um, shows up floating 
full vampire makeup in this fog outside his brother Danny's window. It's straight out of, uh, almost, the idea anyway is just straight out of, you know, horror of Dracula. I mean, he's got this uh-huh. full full-on um, door in his bedroom that leads straight outside, and it's all window. Yeah. And just this fog appears behind it. And I thought this scene was so effective. This is one of the it two. It looks great. Oh, and it's spooky as hell. It's one of the two scenes I do remember from being from a kid. Um, and it is, even for TV, it's pretty creepy for TV. It's scary. It is scary. I mean, because he, he scratches at the window. And he's like... floating in just this otherworldly way. And the way that they did this was two ways. They First of all, they didn't put him on wires because they were like, mm-hmm. wires you can always see. Mm-hmm. So they put him on a like a boom crane from behind so that he would float. He looks like a deadite. To be honest, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, he does. He's, he's got these yellowish, almost glowing eyes, these fangs, and the, his hand is a, is a little claw-like, and he's scratching at the window, and he's got this smile on his face. The other technique they used was they filmed this in reverse, so they reversed uh-huh. the film so that it would have kind of an unnatural look to his movement. And it is so scary. I mean, it really you, is. I was getting chills. It was very scary. And, of course, just like... Like we saw Horror of Dracula, you know, a little while ago, the, her, his brother doesn't seem to mind any of this. <laughs> he kind of slowly gets up out of bed and walks towards him, opens that window, and his brother just floats into the room towards uh-huh. him. It is so chilling. And then commercial break. <laughs> it commercial break. And uh, I think that this is very much uh, inspired by the lore of Dracula because, like, these vampires seem to have the power to enthrall people. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, if you look into their eyes, you will become entranced and, and you'll kind of submit to their will. Um, and later, I don't remember if it's in this part or the second part, but characters figure this out. So <laughs> you know, don't look them in the eyes. Also, just, you know, the vampire look uh, reminded me a lot of um, the Lost Boys. It, it's a very yes. classic vampire look. It, it looks really good. It's very scary. The eyes, right? Yeah. Oof. And and just the fact that it's a kid, I think that there's just something very unnerving about that. And he's a small kid. I mean, in real life, he was only a few months younger than the kid who played his older brother, but he was significantly smaller. Um, and that, that there's just something spooky about that, plus the fact that they're brothers, you know? And so without even the whole thrall thing, you know, your missing brother shows up, well, they're floating and they look scary, but, <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> we'll can see the, see I can see the inclination. <laughs> right, to let him in. So he does. And, and then, you know, Danny starts acting weird. Uh, Susan's dad is the town doctor. He examines Danny. He says, you know, it's really weird. You know, I can't really diagnose anything. The closest I can come to is he seems like, ex- like severely anemic, mm-hmm. um, which makes sense strange things are beginning to happen and it all kind of culminates at Danny's funeral because he dies. They put him in the hospital and his brother visits him again. And after that second visit, he, he dies. The second visit's almost creepier than the first. I mean, you, it's almost the same thing. So you're like, okay, we've seen this before. And as he floats into the hospital room, he's smiling and then lifts up and sort of towers over him for a moment. Yeah, he's looking down at him, and he just seems like 
adult. He seems otherworldly. That was, I mean, it was, it was a one-two punch for me. First scene was number one. This scene was number two. I thought these were the two creepiest. I'm looking forward to the second half because I remember one more creepy scene from the second half. But this, my God, scary. I mean, the whole vampire thing is very intimate, and I feel like in this scene that played very well. Like, yes. Danny's just, Danny just stands there and submits as his younger brother hovers over him, you know, clearly in a position of power, mm-hmm. and eventually Danny just turns his head to one side, and his brother comes in very... Slow and deliberately. Slow and deliberate, almost sensually, mm-hmm. and and begins to, to well, bites him and, and begins to suck his blood. And then commercial. <laughs> <laughs> and then we pick up at Danny's funeral, which is during the day. Um, they have the funeral. The mom faints from grief. The last thing that happens is we see... I think his name's Mike. It doesn't matter. He he works at the cemetery. He's like the groundskeeper at the cemetery. He was one of the guys that picked up the delivery. He is uh, burying Danny, but then all, and he's alone. And then all of a sudden, the wind starts to blow really powerfully and clouds cover the sun. And it seems like the sun must be setting. And uh, it almost seems as though somehow Mike becomes entranced Mm -hmm. he stands kind of dully at the foot of the grave and just looks into it for a long time yeah and then (laughs) and then jumps down in there sweeps the dirt off of it and opens it and danny is in there eyes wide open and glowing not moving but eyes wide open and glowing and they just look at each other for a minute until then danny jumps up and and bites him and and that's it. That's the end, right? Yep, that's it. That's the end of the first half, the first uh, episode. That's as far as I got, Craig. That's as far. But as it's I exciting. Got. It's an exciting cliffhanger because you now you now we know now shit is going to get real. It took us an hour and a half to get there, but now we know. <laughs> but it does. It does get exciting, and the stakes get very very high. Not just for our main characters, but for the whole town. Um, and I remember that about the book, and and it's true of the movie too. And I really like that. This isn't an isolated thing. This is something that is going to impact the entire community, and it's going to happen fast. Uh, like needful things, really. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> it's fun. I'm excited for you. It, the second half is a fun watch. In fact, I stayed, I stayed at work late to finish it. <laughs> wow. You worked late? Is that what you're saying, Craig? You worked late to finish it? <laughs> I mean, you could technically say that. <laughs> Let's go with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing the second half and finally being able to, you know, draw some some big conclusions about the whole movie. Yeah, it's fun. And I, lo- I look forward to talking to you about it. And, and I feel like we can give more evaluation once we've seen the movie in its entirety first half good reasonable setup i really wasn't bored even though it's not super super exciting i think it's it's a nice uh setup for part two well much like the first half of this mini series we're going to end you on a cliffhanger please stay tuned for part two of our review of salem's lot coming to you very soon 
Until then, you can check out our past episodes at our website, twoguys.red40net.com. You can find us online and chat with us just by Googling uh, Two Guys in a Chainsaw Podcast, where you can find our webpage to leave us a comment, our Twitter feed to send us a little tweet, or we also have a Facebook page, and you can find us there as well. We also have a Patreon going on right now if you'd like to support us. Uh, Patreon.com slash Chainsaw Podcast gets you a whole bunch of nifty little features, as well as mini sods that we're putting out at least a couple a month and we also thank our patrons as well those who are supporting us and allowing us to do some more uh, things with this podcast until next time i'm todd and i'm craig with two guys in a chainsaw